In this segment, Richard Rambaran will guide us through the impact of COVID-19 on the Guyanese economy. I want to say that my colleague Ramona on this panel um, aptly outlined a number of, of issues and it's important for us within the Guyanese context to understand the, the brief history as it relates to COVID. Um, if you place Guyana within the global context, one has to realize or understand the fact that Guyana is a country that is not in the, in the core, if you will, or it's not a metropolitan uh, center globally. It's actually a peripheral country and we follow the lead of many of these uh, core countries. In particular, um, as a result of our strong ties and the diaspora linkages with the United States, um, we're very much attuned to the developments and the, the um, thrusts with which the United States and, and, and even to some extent the United Kingdom, etc., um, the ones that they undertake. So if you look at what has actually happened in the United States, you know, the Trump administration has actually had quite a bit of a staggered response in, in the United States. Um, when, you, when you look and if you've been following it closely, you'll see that the Center for Disease Control um, and prevention, the CDC in the US has actually advised um, the leadership of the United States and, and, and we've been heavily criticized for it. Um, that would be their staggered response. So when you think about it, um, within the cultural context of Guyana um, and the Guyanese leadership, a staggered response, I believe, um, was only as a result of the absence of um, the the initial leadership by the United States. Um, one of the other major considerations that one has to make of the, of the, of the surrounding period is that um, the political landscape did not um, lend itself very well towards a national response. As, as anyone who is even remotely familiar with the Guyanese context would know, um, Guyana's political uh, political times and uh, elections, they're oftentimes marred by a, a sharp divide in the society. So hence you would see statements emanating from various quarters that COVID-19, et cetera, was, was a political stunt and, and such the like, which you guys have, have alluded to before. But more importantly, I think within the, the economic aspect and the economic response, one found that we were in a situation at the time where parliament was dissolved. Now, the way that public administration works is that there is an appropriation act which provides for any government spending. Now, a government cannot spend outside of the appropriations act. And as, as you are well aware, Ferlin, the, the, the appropriations act can only be passed annually if one has parliament. Now, this, in my view, um, caused what I would say is a lethargic response from the, eco from the economical aspect. If you take it from, the, from, from looking um, with the economic lens, you'd see that it truly affected the, the fiscal support measures which a government can enact um, to really aid in containment policies. Now, what's very unique about COVID-19 within a public health um, aspect and the impact on the economy 
is is the fact that this this crisis and i've been seeing this for quite some time is much different from from other crises that we have experienced before simply because of the fact that one there it is not a natural it is not as a result of the the, the natural tendencies of the economy it is one which has been superimposed on the economy as a result of a of a development in the public health scenario or in the public health uh, landscape now when you when you examine that and you look at what the measures ought to be from an economic responsiveness side um, and from a public health standpoint the only thing which from a public health standpoint we can do uh, uh, is to ensure that we do containment measures now containment measures means persons being physically distant from each other and staying at home etc so as to lower the transmission rate of the virus now where that comes in from an economy's perspective is the fact that for persons to be able to stay at home they obviously have to receive some amount of support so i i say that this is a multi-pronged um the economic impact will be multi-pronged and when we think about it, I have termed it as being a crisis which actually emanates from the real sector, which is the productive sector of the economy. So what happens is that as a result of COVID-19 limiting physical operations, um, you'll find that both supply will downsize and then uh, the responsiveness by persons, uh, consumers on the demand side of the economy will begin to also uh, contract. So overall, what you have, if we were to just think about a basic theoretical framework, is a contraction in both the supply as well as of the demand, which greatly diminishes the quantum of economic activity existing in the society. Further to that, um, it is not a crisis um, as a traditional economic crisis where it's perhaps confined to one nation or one particular geographic area. This is one where global supply chains in an interdependent global architecture has actually been in interrupted badly. So global supply chains have also um, had a major impact on many countries. Um, thankfully, not as much in Guyana, um, but in some places you can begin to see um, that you know commodities, etc., are beginning to decline. Now, I just want to say um, the the that aspect about containment policies from a health perspective um, and the impact on the economy our our absence of a fiscal support mechanism from the government greatly impeded how much we could contain our population from physically moving so um i'd, I'd want to offer those um as, as just prefatory in nature of course we can probe the discussion much further in the uh, and I'll end there in the interest of time. But I just want to go back to what um, Ramona would have said on, on two fronts. One is when we think about this within the short term, um, we know that our economic responsiveness has to be one which supports um, persons from an aggregate demand side, as we refer to it in, the, in, in, in economics. But we essentially have to ensure that consumers have money that they can be able to shop and that the economy is given an injection um the, the the new administration i've seen strong policy intent to go that route um, so we patiently await the budget which is expected within about three weeks now what i would just want to say is is 
if you look at the way, uh, if you look at what Ramona has adumbrated earlier as regards um, the, the absence of patient history and how it's beginning to affect um, our, our public health response, it really speaks to a public administration issue which we have in Guyana, which is the absence of the use of technology in the public administration sphere. So if you look at it fundamentally, you have much uh, weaker institutions once they are not supported by technology and rapid information. Um, I think also, secondly, the point which you made uh, is a very, very important one. We are unable at this time to determine what will be the long-term impact on public health um, in Guyana. And that in particular will have considerations for how in the medium to the long term we should begin to think about public health care infrastructure. Now, what impact will that have on a population which um, a significant portion uh, has been affected by or can be affected by COVID-19? So I think um, this is a very, a very critical moment in Guyana's development. Um, I know, of course, we've been speaking quite a bit in the public sphere. Much of the public space has been occupied with oil and gas, etc. But coming out of this uh, crisis and pandemic, I think we will see um, a number of cultural evolutions and the uh, transformation, not just in the, in the modus operandi and the modus vivendi, but rather the very ethos of how persons operate. Thanks a lot. Uh, terrific opening. And it's quite comprehensive. Uh, and you got a lot of questions I was about to raise with you. But what I would like to probe a bit is more about the economy and people staying home. Because one of the health regulations stipulates that people need to stay home. They, they should stay home. From an ethical point of view, it's to enforce a, some level of social responsibility. Physical distancing, of course, is one of such social responsibility that we uh, should be practicing at this very time. But from an economic standpoint, how does a country like Guyana, with over 200,000 people set to be in poverty, can they afford to stay home? So, Harlan, thank you for that. And that's a very pertinent question within the context of a policy response. In the first place, let us divide the population into the vulnerable group as well as perhaps a working class vulnerable being the working poor, those who are without a job, and those who perhaps are employed in the gig economy on a part-time basis and doing physical work. They'll also in include those in the informal sector. Then you have those who are in the formal working class sector. In the first instance, one has to examine what is needed to ensure that the containment policies work. And I would have alluded to this in my opening. I think that adequate fiscal support ensuring that what is being referred to in the literature as helicopter money is given. And in Guyana, we have about, I would reckon to say about 180,000 to 200,000 households. About $20 billion would be needed for those households to be given $100,000 and stay home for a period of about two to three weeks. Now, when we think about that, and we look at what the national expenditure has been over the past few years, that's just about 5 to 6% of our full year budget. So whether we have the wherewithal and the ammunition to support our households, I believe that we do. And I do believe that this time calls for some innovative thinking 
on an economic policy responsiveness. And I do think that we can. So for me, um, I, I believe that we ought to identify those one communities and two segments who fall into that first class that we were talking about, those in the very in the vulnerable group, the working poor, the unemployed, those involved in the informal sector, etc. But the other component of it, which relates to the working class, is whilst this, this pandemic is occurring, it's coming at a time when the globe, the global society is on the cusp of the fourth industrial revolution. And every time we have an industrial revolution, the nature and the culture of work during that period changes. So part of the reason why we have an, an eight to four or a nine to five system um, is as a result of the second industrial revolution, where persons were involved in the manufacturing sector um, and largely your output depended on your time spent at work and hence your productivity was integral to the manager. That was in the early 1800s. But we have seen over time both the third and this fourth industrial revolution through the ICT and the communication technology. We have seen that this has actually fundamentally transformed the way in which work can be done. I want to give Michael an opportunity to, to, to give his comments. So Michael, go ahead. So I must say that it's very difficult for persons to actually stay home for two weeks. When you look at the context about culturally and socially and so on, as they, a lot of times you refer to it saying that no man is an island and so on. And this socially is when you, you actually get hit with, with everything and you realize that it's very difficult to actually stay home completely for two weeks. I think in, in a generalistic terms, we've moved past that somewhat, that phase where we should have stayed home. At this point in time, we have to mainly look at mechanisms that we can use to actually curb the spread of the, the disease instead of having people to generally stay home. As it relates to stimulus, I think, again, we missed the opportunity to actually do that. During the, the initial phase in March, mean a few people were brainstorming, like, how do we see this becoming a methodology to like distribute funds and so on? And one thing that, that always came up is that it is very hard for you to give direct cash to these individuals. Uh, one thing that is cited is that Guyana as a country has a severe domestic violence problem and it would be inconceivable that a lot of persons would actually do go out and drink out most of the money that you actually give them, in, especially in the very poorer and more rural regions. So that would have been a bit difficult to actually um, do. Additionally, I think that it would have been better served if we could have actually given the, the population like cash grants in which you could just go to a supermarket and there's only certain goods that you would actually collect. And within doing that, we could have also give utility waivers and so on. And instead of you giving people liquid cash to do these things, as a government, you could actually say, all right, let a utility company, which are government owned, run during this period off of just taxpayers' money. Because generally, when you look at it, they are basically run off of taxpayers' money anyway. So it would have not been very difficult to actually go ahead and allow them to do something like that. The severely hit persons would have been those who would have worked in certain sectors that would have not been available. Like, for instance, when we had to close down all these shopping malls and all of these businesses that would have actually operated off of this. And places like, let's say, a sporting activity, you would need water. The common person who sells water on the road 
would have been severely affected by this. Barbershops were closed during this period. And it would have been important to target those persons as well. And you see, it is really sad because it was an opportunity whereby you could, from a revenue point of view, you could have said that, okay, you know what? We will give these businesses a certain amount of stimulus if you registered your business with the GRA so we can collect taxes from you. And a lot of these informal businesses could have ended up becoming part of our tax threshold. And we could have even incentivized it and say that, well, okay, when you make an XYZ amount of tax contribution, you're eligible for this bracket of um, remuneration and so on, whereby people may start actively paying taxes so they could end up in certain brackets, so they could end up receiving certain benefits. And this wake-up call that we got here is something that a lot of persons would have not seen coming. And we could have done a lot more to actually get our country in a state of readiness to, for the future, basically. Because if you widen the tax base, there's a lot of things that you could actually do. Additionally, as it relates to like the individual itself, um, with when it came to the restriction, it was very difficult from a political point of view to see what was going on. I remember very vividly the politicians telling you to, hey, you know what, you, you should stay home and so on. Everybody should stay home. And yet still they were organizing protests on the road with mass gathering, which was very hypocritical. And, and that brings back to what Ramona said about the culture of Guyana. Because if our leaders are telling us to do X, Y, Z, and then they're being hypocritical to them saying X, Y, Z, the country basically is based, like you, you have no direction. And that is why we have this problem today. Richard alluded to the divide that we have. There were persons with the, who may have been politically affiliated with the PPP actually saying that the, the patient zero did not have COVID. And there were persons within the patient zero also that was telling us that she did not have COVID and it was underlying reasons why she actually died. And that in itself created an atmosphere whereby people did not know what was really going on. And that led to the confusion that ended up happening because it was like there were a sect of people that was very serious about this thing and then there was a sect that were not serious. And eventually, most of the people moved in the direction of the sect that was not serious. And that is what led to spiraling out of control. Additionally, when you look at Guyana as a holistic region and a holistic place and so on, I do believe that it's very simple to start stemming COVID to a more regional um, basis and we can approach it from a very regional perspective in which we, we just set guidelines in certain regions, ensure that there are little to no movement of persons out of these regions, ensure that only goods could actually pass through. And by stemming that, we stem the flow of people and we stem the flow of COVID itself. Because COVID doesn't have a brain. COVID doesn't know how to spread and so on. It's our fault that is actually going in this direction. And there's a lot that we can do. It, the sad part is that at this juncture, it is critically late to do what a, a lot of what we could have done. But now I think the government themselves should look at sensitization of the population. Because like when you look around on Facebook and so on, you don't see ads whereby these people actively telling you, you know what, it's important to wear masks. And as Ramona um, said before, that why we should be wearing these masks and what it would help you with. When you look at the TV, it's the same situation. And it's very, very strange because like just yesterday I went to a supermarket and you could see culturally that these people, Guyanese people don't really care what, what is going on. 
I went fishing once, I think it was two weeks ago, and you, you pass on the sea while bandstand and no one was wearing a mask. And it's like, what the hell are you guys doing to yourselves? And this, the sad part with Guyanese culture also is that unless these things directly affect us, we don't really care about it. Without proper leadership, we, we wouldn't go anywhere. And that's what the country has been plagued with for a very long time. Great insights, Michael. If you can take five minutes of your time, uh, Ramona, to respond to that, what more can we do to impact this culture that we keep referring to? That there's this uh, sort of stubborn culture of not responding uh, appropriately to major health situations affecting the public space. First of all, uh, heart diseases are number one killer, closely followed by cancer. And we have a shit-ass response to that. So I didn't expect us to do much different with COVID-19, I'm sorry. We could do far better for the non-communicable diseases. So putting in a highly contagious disease just stirred the pot and made everything worse. And for Michael talking about communication, we need a lot of that. We need hospitals to communicate. We can no longer exist outside of that. Modern medicine needs communication. The good thing is I was actually just reading an article where the Minister of Health just passed, uh, I'm not sure what they call it, but he has a protocol in place for the hospitals. I'm a bit disappointed that it's only for the doctors when it's a team that's handling COVID. You can no longer go in without imaging, without labs. You need those things to adequately, and pharmacy, to adequately manage COVID-19 patients. In fact, any disease in this day and age. But I, I wish it was a more team approach rather than a doctor approach because that's where you're going to have the shortfalls for this plan. The fact that you're going to overwork these doctors, the doctors are going to be doing more or not doing enough. We just did it. Okay, we did it. That's enough. For the citizens' response, yeah, we need to educate people. Um, one of the things Michael was saying is COVID doesn't have a brain, which is true. You can leave it on a surface and it'll die. One of the reasons it's not going to go anywhere is because it needs bodies to spread. You can't spread COVID without somebody it going in your body. You get it and you're giving it to somebody else. I, I think if a person's truly understood how it's being spread, how it works, and not just the medical or the intelligence sophisticated definition, the most Creole's definition that can get across to the population that they can understand. I know there was some um, efforts in doing it in, in indigenous languages, which is good, but I think I saw more of it in Georgetown than it actually getting out into the villages. I'm hoping the radio channels carried it. I'm really hoping that happened, but as me being very optimistic. Um, I think, and I know we can gather people. So this is where the technology problem comes in. We can't gather people in large groups. We need to get information to them. We need them to be isolated whilst giving them sufficient food and sufficient information to weather through this. And that's the way we're going to have to find solutions to. We were talking about ITC in Guyana, and now more than ever is when you need it, but it's not up running. Like Those are our shortcomings that we had built up to this. It didn't happen overnight. Thanks a lot, Ramona. Richard, do you think Michael has some fair suggestions on what the Guyanese government can do. Anything else that you might want to add, uh, go ahead. Yeah, thanks for that, Ferlin. I think, um, like I would have mentioned, the, the economic response which has to be had to COVID is, is, is fundamentally a straightforward one. I think, however, in the delivery of it, we have to be innovative. I, I'd want to point to a couple of areas which I believe Guyana could benefit from in responding to COVID-19. I think that us paying keen attention to what's happening in the regions in Guyana is very important. That, of course, will what 
the rate or the prevalence of COVID in particular regions will then in turn drive the response by the regions, supported by the local authority. Um, and I think that in essence, we, we perhaps need to begin to look at how we can have perhaps regulation on inter-regional travel or rather intra-regional travel within our border. And the notion of our borders also comes into play here. Um, I think that this really demonstrates how porous our borders are. And if you look at what has been happening to regions one, seven, and nine, which are the, the borders on the western side of Guyana that we share with neighbors, um, you'll see that there is a tremendous rise in the cases there when compared to other um, regions. So, of course, with the exception of region four. So when one looks at the prevalence COVID in those regions, as opposed to the population that's there, um, you'll see that it's significantly more. Of course, Georgetown and Region 4, we expect, given the nature of, of the density of the population there. Two other areas which I believe are absolutely pivotal for Guyana is that, uh, like the panelists would have alluded to, public communications. Absolutely, we need to begin to get the message out more. I have not been seeing the type of utilization of social media that can be done. We also need to have much more imagery being pushed out there. You know, Diana, even though we have a fair degree of the population who are literate, we also have a number of persons who are illiterate. We need to cater for those cross sections. And then the final thing, which I believe can really help within the Guyanese context is the use of telemedicine. Um, and this is where the integration of technology comes into play in our responsiveness. So telemedicine, in my view, is one of those instruments which we ought to use. Believe that it also can aid in the healthcare workers and the frontline workers, one being guided, but two also from an emotional and consoling perspective, know that there are others out there who are supporting them. We, we have not paid enough attention to perhaps what the, the mental health impact of all of this will be in the medium term, perhaps on specifically on the, the frontline workers um, and those who have to go through this every single day. I believe that those are some dimensions where we can, through policy, improve our responsiveness. But I do think that a major reason that you are seeing a rise in the number of cases in Guyana is because of the rise in the amount of testing. But when you look at what's happening, essentially, the more people who are tested is the more we will realize um, that there are carriers, there are persons out there who perhaps have already had the virus and have been asymptomatic and have the antibodies against it. And um, perhaps it's the closer we move to having segments geographically in the country to herd immunity. I would like to thank our guests, Richard, Michael, and Ramona for being here on this Kanuku Forum podcast. I hope our listeners enjoyed this episode, and we hope you follow us for the next one. Take care.